millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. And welcome to a brand new episode of the Haunted Visions podcast. We are dedicated to stories of the paranormal, spine-chilling history, and adventures into the darkness of the unknown. So grab a flashlight, lock your doors, curl up under your blankets, and prepare to be scared. Hi everybody and welcome to episode 18 of Haunted Visions. 19. Shit, 19. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> my name's Brandy, and with me, as always, is my lovely friend, Rachel. Hi, everybody. Hope you guys are doing okay. We here are living the dream. So, we're on episode 19. Now, this was sent to us, uh, the script was sent to us by Jason Dykes, uh, who does wonderful research. He's a librarian, historian, extraordinaire. All around all around jack of all trades sure 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 <laughs> so but we wanted to do this we did this actually on um, my other podcast history dweebs um and so we're going to do it here of course it's going to be a little bit different than we did over there uh but i do i want to talk we wanted to talk about the diatlov pass uh episode or diatlov pass incident um this has a lot of Russian words in it, so please forgive us. We're going to be riding the struggle bus. For sure. Uh, but we found this. I found this an interesting story, and um, I wanted to do it with Rachel because she always has some really neat insights and some great um, observations. So Stop lying to people. Yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> so, um, But I wanna, I, we wanted to talk about this, and the, and the incident actually refers to the uh, unsolved deaths of nine ski hikers is this the story brandy where there may or may not have been a yeti yes <gasps> i know you oh my know, god you know i've been dying to do this i love a good yeti yeah so they're in the northern ural mountains in the soviet union uh and these deaths happened sometime between february 1st and february 2nd of 1959 uh, they were an experienced hiking group, and they were all from the Ural Polytechnic Institute, Go Bears, uh, and had established a camp on the slopes of Kolat something. Um, and during the night, something or someone caused them to tear their way out of their tent and flee the campsite inadequately dre- inadequately dressed for heavy snowfall and sub-zero temperatures. After the group's bodies were discovered, an investigation by the Soviet Union authorities determined that six had died from hypothermia while the other three showed signs of physical trauma. One victim had a fractured skull, two had major chest fractures. Additionally, one of the other team members was missing their tongue and eyes. Uh, the investigated the investigation concluded that an unknown compelling force had caused the deaths. 
So there's a lot of theories surrounding what that oh. unknown force could be. I got one. Well, hold I've on. I've got one. Hold on. It's not your turn yet. It was the boogeyman. <sighs> so He's there's, scary. There's a lot of theories about what the what this force could be. And so um, we wanted to we wanted to talk about that. And, um, you know, you guys can send us, you know, if you have any theories. I would love to hear people's theories on this. Love to Brandy. I know. Uh, You know, it's kind of a kind of a messed up story. Um, But a little background on this. So in 1958, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in Sverdlosek Oblast. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, that's that's about it. An area of the Soviet Union whose capital is Yekaterinburg. Katrinaburg. We'll we'll go with that. Sure. Uh, it's noted that this is where the Romanovs were executed, uh, yeah. but that really doesn't have anything to do with the story. So this this kid, uh, his name's Igor. Uh, he's a 23-year-old radio, radio engineering student. He assembled a group of nine, eight men and two women for the trip, um, and most of them were fellow students at the university. I think one or two were dating, weren't they? I think uh, maybe. I think they were coupled. Uh, each member of the group was an experienced grade two hiker with a ski tour experience. Note, the old Soviet system of grading hikers has been supplanted by a newer one, uh, but from comparisons with the other systems, grade two means that you've gone over rock, snow, ice for at least a hundred miles. So kind of a grade two, semi-badass, grade threes, well, uh, at the time, a grade three was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to traverse 19, or I'm sorry, 190 miles. The goal of the expedition was to reach Otorton a mountain that was 6.2 miles north of the site of the incident. This route in February was estimated as Category 3, the most difficult, and the members of the expedition would receive their Grade 3 certification upon their return. So, uh, the members of this expedition are, and I'm only reading their first names because their last names are just out of control for me. So, it's Igor, and he was the leader. Yuri, and we'll, we're, for these purposes, we're going to call him Yuri 1, because clearly there are two. Yep. Uh, Lud, Lud, Ludmilia. Believe me, I practiced these Lid names million. before. Ludmilia. Whatever. Scare my face. <laughs> Yuri number two. Uh, Alexander. Got oh, that nice. one. Yeah. Nailed it. <laughs> uh, Zen, Zendeda. Zendeda. Uh, Rustin. Mm-hmm. Nikolai. Mm-hmm. Simeon. And Yuri number three. There's a lot of Yuris. Three Yuris. Okay. So... The group arrived by train at Idvel, Ivdel, Ivdel. There we go. A city at the center of Sverdlovsk Oblast. Can we just say Ferdinand? Ugh. It's not it, Russian, but can we go with that? Yeah. In the early morning hours of January 25th. So, okay, so at January 25th, 1959, uh, they arrived at this place. They took a truck mm-hmm. to Vizahi. Uh, and that is a village that is less inhabited. It's a less inhabited settlement um, to the north. It's more remote, I guess. So they spend the night there. They purchased extra food and supplies for the trek. Mm-hmm. On January 27th, they began their jury, their journey. Good God. You're caught up on the Yuri's. I really am. They began their journey to Ortorton. Mm-hmm. On January 28th, Yuri number three, who had... 
uh, some rheumatism and some kind of a congenital heart defect, was forced to turn back due to knee and joint pain Mm -hmm. that made him unable to continue the hike. And I know when it gets cold, I've got a little arthritis in my knee. It's... I can't even imagine being as cold as they were going to be. My ankle does that. Why would he think that that's a good idea to start? But anyway. I I don't know. So the remaining group of nine continued. So we got Yuri 1, Yuri 2, Yuri 3 is out, and then all of the rest. Diaries and cameras, note that these pictures are online, uh, found found around their last campsite, made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began preparing for climbing. In a wooded valley, they stashed surplus food and equipment that, they would, be, that would be used for the trip back. So they're stashing food so they can pick it up on their way back through. Mm-hmm. So on February 1st, the next day, the hikers started to move through this pass. Uh, it seems that they had planned to get over the pass and make camp on the opposite side. But because of the worsening weather conditions... They were, they were having, you know, these huge snowstorms and increasing visibility because I don't know. I know it's not like this everywhere, but here in January, it's wintertime. Yeah. I mean, there was a freaking... And they're in the it's mountains. It's April, and there was a snow blizzard this morning. There's, it's snowing right now. Yeah. Uh, so they lost... So they have all the, the decreasing visibility. They lose their direction, and they deviated west up toward the top of Kolat Siakol. <laughs> Uh, when they realized their mistake, the group decided to stop and set up camp on the slope of the mountain uh, rather than moving the 0.93-mile downhill so to a forested area, which would have offered them some shelter for the elements. So here's the thing. So they set up camp mm-hmm. less than a mile. You know, they're in this huge storm. Mm-hmm. They set up camp less than a mile from a wooded area that would have offered them some protection from the winds and the rain well, and, and I would snow assume and all of that. If you're a mile away, maybe, maybe not. If they didn't really know what they were, where they were, I guess maybe they didn't know. That's that all those, I got is that they didn't know that it was there. I, that's got to be it because I, if, I mean, if they saw the trees on the horizon, you would oh. assume, especially with some experienced hikers, that they sure. would have known what they were doing right. and gone for the trees. I don't know. You would hope so. So anyway, so Yuri number three, who had dropped out of the expedition, later guessed that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude. Mm. So they were about 3,600 feet. They were at about 3,600 feet. They had gained. uh, So they probably, so they decided to practice camp on the mountain slope. So my guess is that was Yuri number, no, that was Igor, sorry. Igor didn't want to lose, or Igor didn't want to lose what the, what the momentum that they'd gained. So they had all this altitude. He Oop. thought he thought that they gained enough traction. They just needed yeah. to keep it going. So yeah, so he decided that they were going to practice camping on the mountain slope. Not a fan of practice camping. Uh, despite nasty weather and slower progress than they planned, their last diary entries reflected high spirits. Before leaving from the university, Igor had told the sports club that he would send a telegram as soon as the group returned to Vizhahi. Vizai, whatever. Uh, it was expected that this would happen no later than Jan- than February 12th, but Igor t- had told Yuri number three before his departure from the group that he kind of expected it to be longer. That's a lot of hiking. Yeah. 
When the 12th day passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction as delays of a few days were common with such expeditions, uh, and it was not until the relatives of some of the travelers demanded a rescue operation on February 20th that the head of the institute set the f- sent the first rescue groups consisting of some volunteer students and teachers. Later, however, um, when they were having trouble finding them, uh, the Army and the local police forces became involved, and they brought in planes and helicopters, um, and they were all looking for, for these kids. Everybody and their mother were out searching. Yes. On February 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on the side of that mountain, Colot. Uh, the campsite baffled the search party. Mikhail... Sharavan. Uh-huh. We'll go with that. So Mikhail, the kid who found the tent, said that the tent was half torn down and covered with snow, which I would expect that it would be. Um, it was em- it was empty, and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. Mm. So that's noteworthy because you don't generally run out in the snow with no shoes. Well, side note, did you know um, I... I feel like it's a mountain in Nepal. There, um, There's like this valley area where there's a bunch of dead bodies from hikers from mm-hmm. that spanned almost 100 years. And they say sometimes when you're in the last stages of hypothermia that you um, your body messes with you and you start to think that you're getting hot and you're delirious and you take all your clothes off. And that's fine. But these kids did not have hypothermia well, at the time. They I were in that. a tent. But I'm saying that would explain – or unless they – I don't We're not know. to theories yet. They're kids in the fifty in their in the fifties. It's not the sixties or seventies. So who knows if they were experimenting with like psychedelics? I don't know. Well, I'm just saying. I'm yeah. trying to find reasons here. So they find their shoes. Investigators said that the tent had been cut open from the inside, and eight or nine sets of footprints left by people who are wearing only socks, a single shoe, or some of them were even barefoot, could be followed leading down toward the edge of a nearby forest, the one that was less than a mile away. At the forest edge under a large cedar, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire along with the first two bodies, those of Yuri 1 and Yuri 2. So, so Yuri 3... Yuri 3's gone. Yuri 3 he, dropped know, out early. He kind of dodged a bullet. He dodged a major I, bullet. It makes you wonder how he was feeling after... I mean, I'm sure he was Guilty. devastated after all of his friends were found, but, I mean, he kind of got <clears throat> lucky, you know? Yeah. He could have been dead, too. Yeah. Uh, so the Yuris are dead, They, but they had enough wherewithal to make a fire. Huh. So uh, they were shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the branches on the tree were broken up to 16 feet high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something, maybe the camp. Uh, between the cedar and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses. Igor... Zeneda and Rustum, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found separately at distances of 984 feet, 1,575 feet, and 2,066 feet from the cedar trees. That's so weird. Searching for the remaining four travelers took more than two months. They were finally found on May 4th under 13 feet of snow in a ravine 246 feet deeper into the woods from the cedar trees. These four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs 
that those who had died first had apparently relinquished their clothes to the other. Simeon was wearing Lamelia's faux fur coat and hat. Well, that was nice. While Lamelia's foot was wrapped in a piece of Yuri Number no. 2's wool trousers. So weird. So, again, if you really want to, you can find these images online. It's it's twisted. It just doesn't No, it there's doesn't nothing about up. this there's, that makes sense. No. A legal inquest started immediately after finding the first five bodies in February. A medical examiner found no injuries, which might have led to their deaths, and it was eventually concluded that they'd all died of hypothermia. Because, you know, eh, what else fits? Right. I mean, yeah. They didn't, I'm pretty sure they didn't find any, like, bear tracks either, because bears are prevalent, I guess, and they didn't find anything. I remember reading about this, and they they didn't see anything. They would have had chew marks on them. They would have had something. Or, you know, you would have seen claw marks in the tent when it looks like their tent was just ripped open with a knife from the inside. From the inside. Uh, Rustum who'd been found on the path between the forest and the tent, had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be the fatal wound. An examination of four bodies, the four bodies that were found in May, shifted the narrative as to what had occurred during the incident. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Nikolai had, a ma- had major skull damage, and both Lenmelia and Simeon had major chest fractures. According to Dr. Boris... Boris has got a crazy last name, so we're just going to call him Dr. Boris. Uh, The force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparing it to the force of a car crash. Uh, Notably, the bodies had no external wounds related to the bone fractures, as if they had been subjected uh, subjected to a high level of pressure. That's the kind of stuff that makes people, you know... That's why I don't go hiking. Isn't that what happens to a lot of people in car accidents almost? Like sometimes yes. they look fine from the outside with the exception of bruising and all their ribs are broken and their yeah. sternum's cracked. However, it should be noted that the fall into the ravine where the bodies were found was about 10 to 15 or 10 to 17 feet. And there were large blocks in the area where the hikers would have landed. However, major external injuries were also found on Lanmilia, who was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips as well as facial tissue and a fragment of skull bone. She also had extensive skin maceration. That's the softening of the skin tissue due to prolonged moisture exposure. So she was buried under snow. That makes sense. Uh, That was on her hands. Uh, It was claimed that Lundmelia was found lying face down in a small stream that ran under the snow uh, and that her external injuries were in line with the putrefaction in a wet environment and were unlikely related to her death. What? Uh-huh. I just, <clears throat> I just can't. I just, it's so hard for me to, I think it's one thing one minute and then I immediately like can't help but jump to supernatural conclusions. I, while you're, while we're going over this, that's all I keep thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes you wonder what kind of crazy stuff is, like what's the real reason for everything that's happening? I just, right. I mean, a Yeti, sure, if you believe in Yetis and you want to chalk it up to that, that makes sense for their injuries, especially all the trauma with breaking their chests and everything else. But I don't know. I don't know. So there was initial speculation that the indigenous Manzi people may have attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands, but investigations indicated that the nature of their deaths did not support this hypothesis. Hmm. The hikers' footprints alone were visible. They had no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. At the time, the ver- 
at the time, the verdict was that the group members all died because of a compelling natural force. <laughs> the inquest officially ceased in May 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive, and the photocopies of the case became available only in the 1990s, although some parts of the files were missing. Uh, they've since been posted online, and the following information can be found on them. Uh, Six of the group members died of hypothermia. Three had fa three of fatal injuries. There were no indications of other people nearby, apart from the nine travelers. The tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six to eight hours after the last meal. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot. Uh, release documents contained no information about the conditions of the skiers' internal organs. Since the 1990s and the opening up of the former Soviet Union... The mysteries attracted widespread attention. Other details that were released by witnesses in the 1990s were that, uh, let's see, 12-year-old, and I'm just going to, his name, Jury, too, evidently, uh, later became head of the Yekrakenberg-based Dyavlov Foundation, attended five of, five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan. However, that kind of discoloration is to be expected under these circumstances. Hmm. Another group of another group of hikers 31 miles south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the night sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in Ivedell and adjacent areas continually during the period from February to March of 1959 by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service and the military. However, these sightings were not noted in the initial investigation in 1959. In 1990, former police officer Lev Ivanov, Ivanov who, led the who led the official inquest in 1959, published an article which included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that after his team reported they'd seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss this claim. However, Russian mountaineer Evgeny Bayanov says he found no verifiable reports of unidentified flying objects in the Urals on this date that the incident occurred. So there are some other theories that are being bantied around, uh, and Rachel's going to tell us a little bit about those. So it looks like, you know, when you're up hiking on a snowy mountain, you would assume that avalanche is a theory. So, and the theory was championed by American author Benjamin Radford. And Radford was quoted um, when asked about this theory from avalanche killing all these people. He said the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help the, slow the un oncoming snow. And apparently I still can't talk today. Mm. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing. But it was too cold and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. Side note, I do know it. if you succumb to hypothermia, apparently death is really quick. It can happen really fast. Basically, yeah. Um, the group of four whose bodies are recovered in the ravine were severely damaged by an avalanche and buried under 13 feet of snow, which is more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. Um, Dubanina's tongue 
was likely removed by scavengers in ordinary predation. And that's a side note that that made me think too. I mean, was the tongue and the eyes like, you know, surgically cut or, you know what I mean? Like it makes you wonder. It could have been eaten. It could have been eaten. I mean, those are the softer pieces, especially for scavengers or birds of prey to, to, to get. Those are the easy pieces of um, a body. So anyway, but there is some evidence that is contradicting to the avalanche theory. So basically the location of the incident, it, it didn't have any obvious signs of an avalanche. Um, an avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris, uh, you know, would be distributed over a wide area. So the first five bodies were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. And then um, there had, had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, those bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line, which besides that one tree, which looks like someone fell out of the tree, basically, and hit a couple limbs on the way down, there was no real damage to any of the trees. And after the analysis of the terrain, the slope and the incline indicates that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that circumvents the other um, criticisms, its trajectory would have bypassed the tent. It had collapsed laterally, but not horizontally. Igor was an experienced skier and much older than Alexander, and was studying for his master's certificate uh, certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. They seemed like they were a lot smarter than that. So here's another theory about what what could have happened. Uh, Infrasound. It's popularized by um, Donnie Eichhardt's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, um, and... It's wind that's going around um, Halachal Mountain created a Carmen Vortex street, which can produce produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. So in the simplest terms, um, Carmen's Vortex street is an oscillating pattern that emerges when a fluid or gas, in this instance, wind, uh, flows around a suitably shaped object, in this instance, a topographical feature, the mountain. When they occur on such a large scale, these wind patterns can theoretically generate very, and I mean very low frequency sound waves that have been blamed for harmful psychological and physiological symptoms in um, human beings. So according to a 2001 review of the medical literature in the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, such symptoms range from annoyance to fatigue to nausea. And I've also heard of similar things like this happening where people think in an outdoor scene for hauntings because it can give you those weird feelings and people say, oh, you know, that place is haunted. Don't ever go there, like a cave, for example, or something like that. I've heard that infrasound um, being offered also as a as a reason for people getting like the heebie-jeebies and thinking that an area is haunted. According to Iker's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the Halacho Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Ikar claims that because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would be unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the results of their stumbling over the ledge of the ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. So um, now we'll bring the theory of military testing 
which hopefully will shed light upon those creepy freaking orbs. Um, So there are records of parachute mines being tested by the Russian military in the area around the time the hikers were there. Um, Parachute mines detonate a meter or two before they hit the ground and produce similar damage to those experienced by the hikers, heavy internal damage with very little external trauma. There were also glowing orbs reported in the sky in the general vicinity possibly caused by such ordnance. This theory claims that as part of the cover-up, the bodies and tent were moved. Photos of the tent show that it was apparently erected incorrectly, something that these experienced hikers are unlikely to have done. This theory in particular, when combined with speculation about uh, radiological weapons, is partly based on the findings of radioactivity on some of the clothing and as well as the bodies being described by relatives as having orange skin and gray hair. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of the hikers and equipment instead of just some of it and um, just some of the hikers. And the skin and the hair discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after three months of exposure in the cold and winds. Plus, no one has ever been able to agree on how severe the radioactive readings were. Furthermore, the initial suppression of files regarding the group's disappearance by the Soviet authorities is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up, but the concealment of information regarding domestic incidents was standard procedure in the USSR and therefore far from peculiar. And by the late 1990s, all Dyatlov files, some incomplete, had been released. And then, so there's another theory as well, uh, paradoxal undressing. International Science Times uh, posted that hikers' deaths were caused by hypothermia, which can induce a behavior known as paradoxal undressing. Oh, this is what I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. In which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. That six out of nine hikers died of hypothermia is undisputed. However, others in the group appear to have acquired additional clothing from those who have already died, which suggests they were sound enough to mine to try to add layers. However, there is no explanation for how this behavior could happen to all nine hikers at the same time. So, I don't, I mean, I feel like that kind of makes sense, but at the same time, like you said, they ripped open their tent and they fled. So something scary, something alarmed them and freaked them the hell out. That's the only reason you'd run away in a, you know, a snowstorm on a mountain with nothing on your body. But, I don't know, depending on how long they were out in the elements, it does make you wonder if that's why they started stripping and gave the rest of their clothes to other hikers. It's just it's bizarre. There are a couple um, theories as well. Uh, Donnie Icar, um, who champions the infrasound theory discussed above, he made a documentary about the incident and evaluated several other theories that are deemed unlikely or have been discredited. Um, so as we said before, they were attacked by the Manzai or local tribesmen. Um, but the rebuttal to that is the local tribesmen were known to be peaceful and there was no track evidence of anyone approaching the tent. Uh, they were attacked and chased by animal wildlife. That's another theory. But there was no animal tracks and um, the group would not have abandoned the relative security of the tent. So if there was a bear or something outside or even if it was a yeti, let's just say for for chance sake, they wouldn't leave their tent necessarily. And I would think there's more strength in numbers, especially if you're going up against a large animal if there's nine of you stuck in a tent together, I feel like you'd stick together, right? I mean, kind of helps your chances of survival rather than running away. I would have to be in that situation. I have no idea how <laughs> I'd be. I mean, I guess if something scary happens like that, too, you're probably not of the most sound of mind. Right. Um, 
There's another theory that the high winds blew one member away and the others attempted to rescue the person, which I think is, I don't even know why people would have that as a theory, in my opinion. I just don't understand that. But the rebuttal on that is a large experienced group would not have behaved like that. And winds strong enough to blow away people with such force would have also blown away that tent. 100% truth right there. Um, There is an argument possibly related to a romantic encounter that left some of them only partially clothed, uh, and it led to a violent um, dispute. But the rebuttal about that is Icar states that it is highly implausible. By all indications, the group was largely um, harmonious, and sexual tension was confined to platonic flirtation and crushes. There were no drugs present, and the only alcohol was a small tiny, teeny, tiny flask of medical uh, medicinal alcohol found intact at the scene. The group had even sworn off cigarettes for the expedition. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go out and, you know, what, 20 below weather and smoke. You smoke in the mountains. No. There's no air. Except for the Smoky Mountains. But um, Wow. That's a terrible joke. It is. Only you can prevent forest fires. Jeez. So, furthermore, a fight could not have left the massive injuries that one body had suffered. There's no way. And... Considering there wasn't a lot of external damage besides, like, the the coloration of their skin for being exposed to the cold for such a long period of time, if someone would have, you know, if you get a lover's quarrel, you get punched in the nose or you get a black eye and your nose would bleed. You know, like, you'd have minor things compared to that. But so all nine victims now um, were buried in Yekaterinburg Cemetery, and there is a large memorial to them there. On July 1st, 2016, a memorial plaque was inaugurated in um, Solokemsk in Ural's Perm region, dedicated to Yuri Yudin, the sole survivor of the expedition of the group who died in 2013. So he didn't die too long ago. Right. And, you know, I bet that poor man suffered with guilt over losing his friends and being the one who couldn't, you know, follow through with the expedition. I just, it just makes you wonder how his life was after that. Why did he start this? Why did he put this together? Why did he start it? Well, no, he didn't. He didn't didn't. do it. It was well, okay. He didn't put it together. Yuri number three. Yeah. But why did he even start to go on it? You have to know. I mean, you got rheumatoid arthritis. You're going into, you know, horribly cold weather, damp weather. Well, he might have. You know, there are people who, if they have something that's holding them back physically, a lot of times they want to prove to themselves that they can do something. I get that. So, I mean, maybe it was. Maybe he thought it was like mind over matter. I don't know. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. Like, well, whatever. Okay. Because at some point I feel like he'd become yeah. dead weight and somebody would have been carrying him. I mean, potentially, yeah, if it was that bad I mean, and he had a flare-up that bad. Yeah. That's that would make sense. Ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, so um, that's our, that's, you know, those are our thoughts on, on the past there, these nine kids or whatever. I mean, it's awful. It's a horrible story. Nobody knows what happens. It's kind of crazy. I kind of want to go with the military theory. Wow. I kind of, that kind of makes sense a little bit. I mean, and when things happen, you know, in every country where their military is doing something kind of odd or they don't want to tell the public about it, it makes – they're not going to tell everybody everything, you know? There is nothing that is going to make me run barefoot through the snow unless my life is in danger. Yeah. Well, I almost believe – I've heard other theories about um, – it wasn't actually in this documentary and it wasn't – that author never spoke about it, but UFOs. I am a strong believer, like hardcore believer in UFOs and aliens. I, I think that this this galaxy in general, the universe, is way too big for just us. 
So, and basically the government came out around like last Christmas and basically said, oh yeah, all those, you know, videos that have come around. Yeah, we're basically, they basically said, yeah, aliens exist and alien technology exists. And everyone was like, oh my God, for like, it felt like just two days. And then everyone like let it blow over and didn't care anymore because we kind of already know. And the government tried to keep it hidden for such a long time. And now they're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, evidence points to yes, yes. I would have to. We'd, and be, we'd be blissfully ignorant. We'd be our ostrich heads in the sand. Basically. But I I kind of feel like maybe that's a possible theory because if, if they did die from some weird, like, alien technology, we don't know what that is or what they've got. We don't. I don't know if I, if I believe that, it, that a Yeti did it only because I feel like there would be more evidence and maybe you would have never found some of those bodies. Right. They you know? tore up a lot more. I feel, I feel like that anyway. All right. So, Rachel, you want to read us our ghost story? Yeah. Um, we had um, a ghost story submitted for our ghastly ghost section by uh, Jillian. I will not read her last name because I don't see that she gave me permission to. She says, hello, I have had several encounters throughout my life and I would love to share them. But my absolute favorite is the one that has to do with my son and my great-grandmother. While visiting my great-grandfather, my son, who was seven at the time, needed to use the bathroom. So I brought him upstairs to do his business. Naturally, his brother, who is also seven, had to go too. So it was a group adventure up the stairs. I brought both boys and my great-grandfather's wife has a lot of breakable items in the hallway and therefore adult supervision was required. While standing in the hallway waiting for his turn, my son Aiden stared into my great-grandfather's wife's room. He was smiling and suddenly he waved. I asked him, what are you waving at? He looked at me with an expression like, geez, you're dense, and said to me, the lady in pink, just plain and simple. I replied so quizzically, what lady in pink? He pointed and said, that lady, mama. Now, he was a confused one. Rather than argue with him um, that there was no lady standing there, I asked him if he saw a picture of her anywhere, and he then looked around the hallway and pointed to a picture of my late great-grandmother. She passed away two years before I was born. With that, it was his turn to go to the bathroom, so he bebopped his way in like nothing odd had happened. With that, when both boys were set, I guided them down the stairs and had asked my husband to take them to the park across the street. I gently sat down on the couch opposite my great-grandfather. And then I had said, So, Grandpa, something interesting happened upstairs. And then I explained. My great-grandfather was a six-foot-four World War II vet. I had never seen him cry, and at the close of my story, he was bawling. Through his tears, he proclaimed, Oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. I've heard and seen her, too. He saw your great-grandmother. She was buried in that pink dress. I've seen her come down the stairs, and I swear every morning I hear her yell my name. I will be sitting in my chair and just hear her from the kitchen sometimes, too. I had since asked my son about what happened, as he is now a teenager. He doesn't recall seeing her, but I'll never forget how much relief he brought to my great-grandfather. You know, what's really odd is, um, years ago, my dad lived on the west side of Cincinnati, and my mom lived, like, way, way out in the country in Kentucky. And my dad, having other small children himself with his other wife, um, or I guess his... my. My parents were divorced when I was very young. Um, It was hard for him, you know, on a Sunday night when he's got to get the kids, you know, in a bath and ready for their preschool and whatever the next day. It was easier if either my mom could come get me or my grandpa, who didn't really have much going on, who was also a World War II vet, to come and get me. And my grandpa liked long drives in the country. 
So he would pick me up from there and it was probably like an hour and 20 minute drive um, just one way. I mean, it was a really far drive, but my grandpa loved picking me up and he liked listening to classical music and he would tell me his old war stories and just talk about life in general. Um, and his wife, my grandmother died when, um, I was only six months old. So there's pictures of her holding me, but I've never, I know obviously don't remember her and I didn't get to know her, unfortunately. So he would tell me sometimes that when he would drive me out to the country after he'd drop me off at my house and head back towards his home, um, he would sometimes look in the rearview mirror and see her sitting in the back seat. And it would just be a quick glance, he said, and it never scared him. It was kind of gave him a warm feeling and he'd have a tear or two slip out and he'd sit there and he'd just talk to her. Even though she, he'd see her for a second, he'd just talk to her like she was there. And he said it was really comforting. That was crazy. That always stuck with me when he said that. And also being such a young kid freaked me out because I would always like casually like peek in the back seat and try to be inconspicuous about it. Well, sure. And I never saw her, but, you know, he thought, he's like, I don't know if I'm just going crazy, kid, because, you know, he was in his 80s. And, and um, but he was a good guy. And that, that story kind of made me feel good knowing my grandma was watching out over him still. But anyway, so that's our podcast, guys. Um, we have a couple more listener stories we're going to get to. Again, sorry about the delay, um, the previous delay a couple weeks ago. Um, we do have a couple things coming up. And um, shoot us your listener stories to hauntedvisionspodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Twitter. So uh, everybody, you know what? We're, we've had a blast doing this. This is an interesting story for us. Uh, we appreciate your listening. And... Everybody sleep tight. Don't let the ghosties bite. Good night, guys.